people can do amazing things. Walk on the moon, contain a nuclear meltdown. And what do they have in common? They're not in it alone. Creativity, talent, genius, it's all a team sport. We have seen what we thought was unseeable. It was a step in a direction that nobody had taken before. I'm Gabriella Cowperthwaite, host of Teamistry. It's an original podcast from Atlassian, all about the chemistry of teams. Check it out on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Interested in healthcare? Well, here's a programme you might not want to miss. Hosted by longtime healthcare reporter Dan Gorenstein, Tradeoffs takes a close look at the costly, complicated, and counterintuitive world of the US healthcare system and the policies that govern it. Tradeoffs digs into the weeds with experts who understand the data driving the policy trends while telling compelling stories of those impacted by those policies. In the words of the Tradeoffs team, there are no easy solutions for a troubled healthcare system, just Tradeoffs. You can find Tradeoffs wherever you listen to your podcasts. Welcome to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and also with Ginny Smith. This week, we're looking at the latest breakthroughs in cancer, including blood tests to pick up the disease much earlier, new genetic treatments to trigger tumours to kill themselves, and a laser technique to zap cancers in hard-to-reach places. Plus, why working the night shift can curb your intellect, a super enzyme for power plants that could cut millions from energy bills, and the gut bacteria could keep you trim. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by ukfast.co.uk. Now, if you're listening to us at the end of a night shift or on your way into work after getting up before dawn, our first item may not come as a surprise. Researchers say that doing antisocial shifts over many years can actually dent your brain power. But why is this? And if you stop working irregular or night shifts, can your cognition recover? Well, Hannah Critchlow has been taking a look at the study for us. So, Hannah, what exactly have these researchers been doing? Well, it's long been known that if you have altered sleep patterns or you don't have enough sleep, then it will affect um, most probably your metabolic or cardiovascular. So it could give health problems, for example, with your heart or with ulcers, for example. And it can also affect your mood and it can have short term effects on your memory or your cognitive functions. But what hasn't been known before is whether changes in sleep patterns and doing rotational shift work would have a long term effect. So 10 years down the line. So this study has been a first in its kind. It's looked at over 3,000 people and it's followed them over a 10-year period and then found out that firstly, yes, shift work can actually affect cognition and it had a detrimental effect on memory and speed of processing in these different tasks. But then they also found out that um, if you stopped doing shift work, then within five years, you would actually reverse that cognitive decline and, um, and, and go back to normal, as it were. And how much shift work do you have to do before you see these effects? Is it just a case of a night of not getting enough sleep and you have memory problems or is it something more complicated? If you don't sleep well for one night, then yes, your memory might be um, slightly skewed the next day. But they were showing that um, it's kind of over two year period that you start seeing a really slightly significant effect on cognition. And then if you um, work on shift work for 10 years, then then you will um, show a significant, really significant decline in your cognitive function to a point where 
that your behaviour, your cognitive age is similar to someone who's six years older than you. Wow, that sounds like a huge effect. If it's not just the case that it's you haven't got enough sleep, if it's something that carries on for longer than that, do they know anything about what the mechanism is that causes these problems? Well, they hypothesise that it might be because um, your sleep patterns are altered, your cortisol levels are also altered. So cortisol is kind of the stress chemical in the brain, if you like, and it, and it helps in some ways. It helps us to wake up in the morning. And if you've got altered sleep patterns, you're sleeping at different times and waking up at different times, then obviously your cortisol levels will be changed. And cortisol, we know, affects um, kind of the key region in the brain that's involved in learning and memory. It's an area called the hippocampus. And this area of the brain is also very important because it's one of the few areas of the brain where you get new nerve cells being born throughout life. And this might be important for learning and memory. So it may be that this um, kind of chronic uh, shift work is affecting the new nerve cells being born via the cortisol levels. The authors of the study are, are propositioning that possibly if you are unable to stop shift work, then it might be a good idea to do other things that might help boost the birth of new brain cells in the hippocampus. So, for example, exercise and social, social interacting with other people, that can help boost new nerve cells. And also exercise decreases cortisol levels, so that could be good. And they looked at people after they quit shift work as well and found that this problem went away. So how long did it take and, and what happened with those people? Yep, so um, if people had stopped doing shift work and they were now working more standard nine to five, then within five years, their cognitive profile would be um, similar to age and socioeconomic matched controls. So if you are a shift worker, it's not the end of the world. Your brain will get better as you give it up. And even if you can't give it up, there are things you can do to improve your, your learning memory and your general cognition. Exactly, yeah. Thanks, Hannah. Could explain quite a bit in my case. Now, still to come, how music is teaching kids computer coding. Before that, though, a way to cut the cost of electricity. Good news all round. A large coal-fired power station can pump out up to 100,000 tonnes of carbon dioxide per day. And that makes it very hard for countries like the UK to meet their obligations to cut greenhouse gas emissions. But there are ways to remove or scrub CO2 from what goes up the chimney, but they're very expensive to operate. Now a research team in America have come up with a way to make this scrubbing process much more economical. They found a bacterium that makes an enzyme, which is a kind of biological catalyst, that can turn carbon dioxide into a soluble chemical called bicarbonate. By introducing random changes or mutations into the genetic instructions that tell the bacteria how to make the enzyme, they've been able to come up with a new super-powerful version of it that might save us millions on our power bills. Science writer Mark Peplow has been taking a look at what this enzyme can do. It's called carbonic anhydrase. This is an enzyme that's normally found in your body where it helps to transport carbon dioxide out of your tissue. It does this by combining carbon dioxide with water to make soluble bicarbonate and a hydrogen ion. Now, enzymes are proteins and they'd normally be destroyed at the high temperatures and the harsh conditions that are normally used in carbon capture systems. Just think about what happens when you uh, put an egg in a frying pan. The albumin in the egg white gets completely broken down and it goes solid and white and rubbery. So when you would be applying this technology, you're saying this enzyme would have to tolerate the flue gases coming out of a power station or something. So there's going to be really high temperatures. 
Well, that's right. So what happens normally when people are trying to set up carbon capture systems on a fossil fuel power plant, it uses special solvents called amines. They grab hold of carbon dioxide molecules before they fly up the chimney. You then pipe the solvent away, carrying the carbon dioxide, and you heat it up to release the carbon dioxide into a storage container so that it doesn't escape. The solvent then gets cooled down and cycled around to do the same job again. The trouble is that all this heating and cooling and the equipment that you need to do it is really expensive and it potentially adds hundreds of millions of pounds to the cost of a power plant, which makes the electricity more expensive and it reduces the plant's power output as well. That's been a huge barrier to widespread use of this system. And this is where the carbonic anhydrase comes in because it can help to capture the carbon dioxide and make this process much more efficient. The trouble is that in the past, enzymes, because of their sensitivity, couldn't stand up to the you know 100 degree conditions and harsh alkaline conditions of this uh, heating and cooling of the amine solvent. So where did these American researchers come by this super enzyme? How did they make it? Well, they got it out of a bacterium and then they introduced random mutations into the enzyme to see if they could make it tougher uh, in a process that's called directed evolution. So you get lots of random mutations. Uh, These are genetic versions. changes, aren't they? You, you're, that's you're adapting right. the DNA of the organism just by, by making mistakes, if you like, spelling mistakes yeah, in the DNA. you make deliberate spelling mistakes in the DNA um, and lots of different types of mistakes. And that gives you a whole pot of new mutated enzymes. Most of them are rubber but a few will be a bit tougher. They did nine rounds of this directed evolution and each round they picked the toughest enzyme that they got at each stage and then they made more mutations to that particular enzyme. In all, it meant that they tested more than 27,000 different mutated enzymes and at the end of that process they end up with one which is the superman of all of these enzymes and it can withstand more than 100 degrees of temperature and a pH greater than 10. So that's almost as alkali as household bleach. So it's almost the enzyme equivalent of the, the indestructible or invincible man, isn't it? I mean, really, really tough. So have they actually got evidence that this can work? Well, this is the exciting thing about this paper, which which came out this week in the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Um, they haven't just done this in the lab. They've tested this enzyme in a pilot carbon capture unit attached to a coal-fired plant. And they found that it improved the carbon dioxide absorption of the amine solvent system by 25 times. Um, it allowed it to remove about 60 to 70 percent of all the carbon dioxide from the plant's waste stream. And they ran it for about six days with no loss in performance at all. So clearly the enzyme is working and it's really robust. This faster absorption that it can allow you to do means that you could have much smaller processing units running at lower temperatures and that could potentially make carbon capture a lot cheaper. They've uh, done a cost estimate, in fact, and they think that if you scaled this up, it could knock more than $100 million off the cost of a full-scale unit. That might sound like a huge figure and, and they're extrapolating quite a lot. But it's important to say that the, the people, the researchers that have been doing this are uh, they're, they're pretty big hitters. They're involved in uh, big industrial enzyme developers like Codexis and Novozymes. And they've partnered with BP Biofuels on this. And they've been backed by research funding from the US Department of Energy. All of that, I think, makes it quite promising that this is going to go forward for further development. 
All good news. Mark Peplow with a possible breakthrough in efforts to limit global warming. A new study from the University of Cambridge has found that making music in classrooms using computer coding could revolutionise the teaching of both subjects. Teenagers have been trying out a system called Sonic Pi, which uses the same techniques that professional computer programmers use to make websites to create their own tunes. Greer Jackson went to the Sonic Pi Summit, a meeting of teachers, music makers and programmers, to meet Sonic Pi inventor Sam Aaron. One of the things that we're learning as a society is the importance of programming for creating new ways of interacting with the world around us. And that can help support the current activities to make them more efficient, but it can also give us new possibilities and new ways to express ourselves. Tell me what you initially set out to do. So I built Sonic Pi to make it easier to get a creative engagement with programming. I built a very simple system which allowed you to make simple beeps and to time the beeps and to change the sound of the beeps. But through that, we were able to teach fundamentals of programming. So we were able to teach iteration, so doing things a number of times, like five times. Or you can teach basic conditionals, so if this is the case, then do that, otherwise do something else. Now, all these things are really valuable for creating music, but also they're all fundamental computing constructs. So we're actually sneaking in some computing whilst we're learning how to do music. I was going to say, is this something that you actually use in coding rather than just it being a nice fancy gimmick to involve creativity in coding? Absolutely. Well, I mean, the fancy gimmick is just a way of sneaking in the programming. And what they're actually using is a professional programming language to do all this stuff in. And so the skills they're learning to make the music are skills which are absolutely applicable in the industry, which is quite exciting. Can we have a, a play? Absolutely. So here I've got a, a very basic, what I call a live loop. And in that loop, we're just playing the note 50 and sleeping for a second. So if I start it off, we should hear it. It's just beeping like that now. And uh, what would you like it to do? Is it too low? Is it the wrong kind of sound? Is it going too slowly? A little bit slowly, I think, for my taste. You want to make it go a bit faster. So to make it go faster, well, if I, we're sleeping for one second between each note. So shall we go down to half? Why not? <laughs> so if we put in half there and I reevaluate the code... You can hear it now going faster. Uh, another thing we could do is that note might be a bit too long, so we could reduce the length of the note. So we can use what's called an envelope to reduce the amount of time that that note lasts for. So if I put release 0.1 seconds, we can hear it's going very short. Um, well, this is a very bassy note, so maybe we want to take it up a couple of octaves. It's quite nice. But uh, maybe I want to add some reverb. We'll have echo going. I can change the phase duration of the echo. And then that's the same note every time, so maybe you want to choose a random note. So if we choose a note from chord E3 or E2 minor. It's a bit too low as an octave, so maybe we go up an octave. Make it go faster. Get rid of the echo. And then we can start playing around with different synthesizers. So that's the basic beep sounds. And how about a saw wave? Or the profit wave? And that sounds nice at different cutoffs. So I should add, you are literally just typing very simple. What? Oh well. How many lines? I wouldn't say nine lines. Nine lines. Not very much at all. And it's a. 
It's very much what I imagine as a non-computing coding person, what it would look like on the back end of a website or an app. Exactly, exactly how it is. Um, I mean, it's the same kind of code. Ruby is actually used often, has been used quite a lot recently to make websites with. So it's the same language. You might write your business logic in. Here I'm using to write and configure synthesizers and effects. What struck me was that it was a lovely fusion of disciplines, something that is often missing from the classroom when the days are divided by the hour, with maths in first period, art in second. What I was keen to know, though, was could you actually create a half-decent song using Sonic Pi? Hello, I am Skull Eyes from Swamp Thing, and we are one of the artists who was invited to create a music video for the Sonic Pi project. And what's the track that you're playing here today? The track's called In Thread. So you can create music, but can you learn to code with Sonic Pi? Is it more than just a gimmick? And could children go on to build their own websites or apps, having played around with Sam's creation? Pam Bernard from the Faculty of Education at Cambridge, whose research on Sonic Pi was released just this week. We've found that young people learn differently. They work differently, they think differently, they engage differently when they're coding. I've taught in uh, classrooms in secondary schools and primary schools for 15 years and I've not seen the nature of this engagement. It's an engagement with a technology that is not about playing the outside of something but actually programming from the inside. But is this just more than a bit of fun? What are students actually coming away with? I think there's this sort of the whole contemporary aspect of being able to code and control as a young digital learner. This is very comfortable for them, though there are risks, uh, the risk being that their code crashes. What do we mean by risk, and is that necessarily a good thing? The risk-taking actually uh, launched them into a different space, a learning space where... To take risks meant that they were actually being creative. They were problem-solving out of crashes with codes. And these code crashes, like a sort of you know, car crash, is pretty exciting. And then to kind of solve the problem and to be able to perform on is one of the big things it was doing. That's why one of the findings is that it engages in diverse and new learning pathways. Music from the Sonic Pi, ending that report from Greer Jackson at the Sonic Pi Summit. Must be the first time, Ginny, that people can actually legitimately turn up with their laptop to a club and not get laughed at. (laughs) You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and me, Ginny Smith. Coming up, how your genes control what bugs you carry in your intestine, which can in turn control whether you stay slim or put on weight. Sounds interesting. But first, when bats swoop in darkness to catch their dinner, they emit high-pitched sound waves and then they listen to the echoes that come back. And they use this echolocation technique to find food and to avoid crashing into things. But now scientists have discovered that they can also use the sounds for more nefarious purposes. They can jam the echolocation of other bats. Jade Lauren Cawthray is an ecologist and a bat enthusiast who takes groups on nighttime bat walks. And she's been taking a look at this new study for us. Hi, Jade. Hi, good evening. So, can you tell us a little bit about how echolocation works to start with? 
Yeah, so with echolocation, a bat literally does this very, very big shout and the sound waves travel through the air and then bounce off the environment and they come back to the bat giving it an idea of the shape and the textures of its environment. So objects that are really close to the bat, the sound will come back to the bat nice and quickly so it knows it's not very far away, say a moth, for example. But if there was a tree much further away, the sound wave would take a longer amount of time to come back to the bat so it knows it's much further. So they get an idea of distance and and the shape of their environment. So you say the bats are shouting, but when I go out at night, I can't hear a load of noise coming from the sky. Why is that? So bat, bats do shout and they shout very, very loud. And um, they shout at about 110 decibels, which is equivalent to um, a jet flying low overhead. So it's a really, really loud noise. But the shout is actually a different frequency, a frequency above that that we as humans can hear. So we can hear up to about 20 kilohertz, but the bats, their echolocation can be anything from 20 to 200 kilohertz. So it's just at a frequency above what we can hear. So it's it's just too high pitched for our ears. Yes. But you've got an example of um, some noise, bat noise that we can actually hear that I think you've brought with us. Yeah. So here, what you can hear is a slowed down version of a bat echolocation. And you'll hear these little sharp points and they're getting faster and faster. And they get faster and faster as the bat gets closer to an insect. So as it gets closer and the insect's moving around, it needs to be able to pinpoint where the insect is more accurately. So it does more and more, and more shouts to get more and more information of location of the insect. But now some researchers have found out that bats are doing something completely different with their echolocation. Yeah, so this piece of research that has been released this week, it's quite exciting because it's the first time something like this has been just uh, recorded. And basically what they found is in Mexican free-tailed bats, the bats are actually interfering with each other's echolocation. So one bat will make an echolocation call trying to capture an insect, but another bat will come along and send a different type of sound, a different type of call that actually... Um, interferes with the sound waves of the first bat. And what this means is that the first bat isn't able to judge the distance of the insect as accurately and actually misses the prey. And I think we've got a recording of that one as well. So you can hear that like we heard before, and then in a second, you can hear like a whistly up and down noise. And this is called, this is a kind of jamming tone that they're doing. And they're they're making this very different call around about the time that the first bat is increasing the speed of its echolocation. So as it's starting to hone in on that insect, the other bat starts to send a different frequency, which stops it capturing the insect. And it sounds quite different. So it's not just that that bat's also echolocating to find that insect. Are they really trying to prevent their fellow bats from getting food? I thought bats were quite a social species. Yeah, so um, the report suggests they looked very carefully at this. They wanted to know, was it that the second bat was trying to disturb the first bat by sending the sound towards the bat, or were they trying to capture the insect and sending the noise at the insect? And they seem to be sending it at the insect to interfere with that those sound waves. Um, so they're definitely trying to prevent the other bat from getting the food. Um, the Mexican free-tailed bats are, are quite famous, particularly in the States, because they roost in numbers of a million or more individuals. And so what could be happening here is that because there are so many individuals, the number of insects available per individual is much lower. So there's actually more competition between them for food. Fascinating. Thank you, Jade, Lauren, Corthway. Not very kind to your bat mate, is it? <laughs> Putting them off their dinner.
And talking of dinner, you are what you eat, or so the saying goes. A new study comparing the bugs living in the guts of identical and non-identical twins has helped scientists to flush out a strain of bowel bacteria that are controlled by the genes that you carry, and this appears to help some people to stay slim. Ruth Lay made the discovery at Cornell University in the States with some help from a British bunch of twins. We're very interested in the kinds of microbes that live in people's guts. And we know that there's hundreds of thousands of different kinds living there. And we know that uh, everybody's got their own special mix. And up until now, the thought has been that it's what you eat or your lifestyle or who you hang around with. That really is the key to your personal mix But what we wanted to know was, what if it's your own genetic makeup? Does that have any effect? How can you disentangle, though, the fact that all of us are different and we all have different lifestyles, we all have different parents, we all have different preferences for food, drink and so on. How do you get that away, that lifestyle effect, away from the genetic effect then? You can use twins. There's two kinds of twins. There's identical twins And identical twins have exactly the same genetic makeup. They're essentially clones of each other. And then the other kind of twin are fraternal twins. And so fraternal twins are basically siblings that are born at the same time. Because the twins are all born together, they'll be exposed to the same things. They'll grow up in the same house. And so those environmental influences are going to be the same. And so if you find that something is more similar for the identical twins you know that it's not just a shared environment that's done that. Indeed. So what did you find then when you did this? So what we had to do was ask these twins, and there were hundreds of them, to send us some of their poo. Was that in the form of soiled nappies or just samples in pots? How how did this (laughs) come to you? These are are all English people, actually. And these English twins are used to working with the UK Twin Registry in London. So they come in once a year for an annual visit And this time they brought with them some poo. The poo is about half bacterial cells. Each one of those cells has got DNA in it. And we can tell what kinds of bacteria are there by sequencing a particular gene that tells us what kind of bacteria uh, that came from. And then what we can do is tally them all up. We do that for all the twins, and then we see if the identical twins have more similar profiles than the fraternal twins. And do Um, they? Well, they do. They do overall. And then we found that there's particular kinds of bacteria for, for, for which that's particularly true. So there's particular kinds of bacteria that are very much influenced by the host genetics, whereas others are not at all. What fraction of the bugs as a whole were determined by the genes of the person carrying them? It's a small fraction, but we think it's a very important fraction. Because what we noticed is that they tend to be more abundant in thin people compared to obese people. We did some experiments with very special mice that are born and bred in bubbles. They don't have any bacteria or any microbes in or on them. So what we did was give them poo from an obese person that didn't have these special bacteria that we were interested in. And then we took another set of mice and gave them the same poo, but this time we did add our special bacteria that we're interested in. And what we noticed after three weeks is that the mice that got the poo plus the special bacteria were thinner than the mice that got the poo from the obese people without the special bacteria. And so what that told us was that these special bacteria are able to 
make the mice thinner than if they're not there. Did you compare how much the, the fat and thin mice ate? In other words, could you actually say, well, these mice are slimmer despite eating the same amount, or were they just eating less because they didn't feel so good? No, they did eat the same. So when we see these bacteria more abundant in thin people, we think maybe people are thinner in part because they've got these special bacteria helping them maintain that healthy weight. Would your interpretation be then that you have a certain genetic makeup, your genetic makeup determines or influences what sorts of microorganisms you carry in your intestines, and that in turn influences how you tend to handle energy, food that comes into your body, whether you turn it into fat, in other words. We do think that something exactly like that is happening, that the genes are influencing the types of microbes that we have, and the microbes are then influencing our body type. Now, whether that is actually through how we handle food or some other way, that is something that we're still trying to understand now. There's a lot of emphasis being placed on the phenomenon of transpusion now, isn't there, where people actually give poo transplants from one person to another to help them to recover from various intestinal diseases. Do you think then that uh, one approach might be to get together with a few thin people if you're trying to shed a few pounds and ask them for a transpusion? I don't think that's necessarily a very good idea, but I think that eventually we might want to have this particular bug that I'm talking about, these special bacteria, and just take those directly in a capsule. Yeah, they might taste better too. That was Ruth Lay. She's from Cornell University, and she published that work this week in the journal Cell. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and also with Ginny Smith. Our main topic this week is the subject of cancer. Coming up, we'll hear about a new genetic technique that, that triggers tumours to kill themselves. We'll also find out how a laser system can be used to zap cancers in hard-to-reach places. And we'll look at the link between cancer and mental illness. But before all that, let's look at the basics. Tim Revel and Georgia Mills have some quick-fire facts and misconceptions about cancer. There are over 200 different types of cancer, but genetic research suggests that every cancer may be unique to the individual. Cancer causes your cells to divide abnormally, which then starts spreading around the body. Abnormal cell division leads to the extra cells building up in a clump, which is called a tumour. But not all cancers make tumours, for example leukaemia. There are over 14 million cancer cases worldwide each year, causing around 8 million deaths. Cancer can cause many different types of problem, depending on where it is in the body. Often, the cancerous cells prevent healthy cells from doing their job correctly. Radiotherapy, chemotherapy and surgery are three of the most common cancer treatments. And they are often used in combination. Surgery has the best overall success rate. This method aims to directly cut out cancerous cells from the body. While radiotherapy involves precisely firing high-energy rays at cancer cells and eventually causing them to die. And chemotherapy uses drugs instead of radiation to achieve the same effect. Now for some myth-busting. Fact or fiction? Cancer is a recent man-made disease. Fiction. Cancer was described by the ancient Egyptians and the ancient Greeks. And has been detected in mummies, early skeletons and even in dinosaurs. Cancer is on the rise, but that's mostly because we are living longer. As well as smoking, drinking and eating too much. Superfoods prevent cancer. Fiction. There is no such thing as a superfood. It's a marketing term, not a scientific one. A diet rich in all kinds of fruit and veg will help to reduce your cancer risk, but eating a few trendy berries on top of an unhealthy diet isn't going to be much help. Cancer treatment kills more than it cures. Fiction. 
Now, it is true that a lot of people die after cancer treatment. But this is usually because the treatment just didn't work or came too late, and people succumb to the disease. Cancer treatments are not without their risks, but new treatments and earlier diagnoses have increased the number of survivors. Many cancers still have poor outlooks, but there are some success stories. 96% of men diagnosed with testicular cancer are now cured. Compared with only 70% in the 1970s. Three quarters of children with cancer are now cured. While only a third were in the 70s. It's still a big problem, but we know more about cancer now than ever before. Tim Revel and Georgia Mills. Meanwhile, our own Kat Arney, who works as a representative of the charity Cancer Research UK, has been at the National Cancer Research Institute's annual conference, which just took place in Liverpool. There, she spoke with Warwick University scientist Ian Cree, who's working on a way to hunt for cancer using a blood sample. What we're hoping is that we can develop a blood test for cancer. This seems to be the dream, isn't it? We see these stories popping up every so often. Blood test could detect all kinds of cancer. How does yours work and, uh, and is it, the key thing, reliable? Well, at the moment, we don't know. What we've done is to trawl the literature and we've actually discovered 816 uh, markers for cancer that could be used in this way. So what do we mean by markers? So markers are things that circulate in the blood. Cancers have various attributes, and each of those attributes produces things, changes in the blood, which we can measure, and we call those biomarkers. Now, with your test, if you could pick up different types of cancer, how would you know what cancer it was, where was it in the body? Because I guess this is a problem. You can't just go, I think you've got cancer, but we don't know where it is. Well, we actually think that's one of the problems with the previous work in this area, that everyone has been looking for specific markers for specific cancers. We actually think that a generic marker will work better and that we'll need to use multiple markers and uh, the negatives to help the positives, that sort of thing, so that we're able to detect the cancers as early as possible. It doesn't actually matter terribly much if we don't know exactly where they are um, because radiology is now good enough that we can detect some very small changes and we know where most of the changes are going to be. By taking the generic test and then triaging the patients to uh, reflex, what we call reflex tests, and those reflex tests will allow us to uh, determine a bit more about the cancer site and if there actually is one there. So we'll increase the specificity and we'll increase the knowledge of where it might be. So you'd give someone this test and say, oh, we think you should go on for a, a CT scan or further investigations... Exactly, yes, that's right. We'd, we'd look to see whether there was anything other that they could do um, that would help to determine whether they actually had a problem. And the whole point of this is to detect the cancers really early so that uh, patients can be treated and probably walk out the door ideally the same day without ever having known they've had one. It sounds wonderful that you could have a blood test that would pick up all sorts of different types of cancer, but how soon do you think this would be actually available, say, in the clinic? Well, I'm afraid, like most of these things, it's going to take some time. At the moment, what we've done is to look through the literature. We've collected a very uh, expert group of people together. So we've got a fabulous team, which is uh, very experienced in looking at all the different biomarkers that we're interested in and in the ancillary things that we need to do. So there's a big, some big statistical questions to do around this. There's a lot of other work that we need to do um, before we can put it into the clinic. We're hoping to start testing this next year and as a concept, and then develop something which would be then submitted to a clinical trial probably in about three or four years' time. 
Very encouraging news. Ian Cree was talking there with Kat Arney. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith and me, Ginny Smith. Now this week we're looking at the latest breakthroughs in cancer. Coming up, a way to use lasers to produce high-energy particles that can discreetly zap tumours in places that are otherwise hard to get at. But first, we're joined by Dr Neil Martin. He's the Chief Operating Officer and co-founder of Mission Therapeutics. They're trying to trigger what they call synthetic lethality in cancer cells, and they do this by deactivating certain critical systems that cancer cells rely on to both grow and to remain alive. Healthy tissues have backup systems, but cancers don't, so switching these systems off makes the cells self-destruct. Hello, Neil. Good evening. Good evening, Chris. Tell us, first of all, what's going on in a cancer cell genetically. Why does it have this Achilles heel that you're plugging into? Cancer um, really likes to be genetically unstable. It likes to be very mutational. So what it does is it tries to switch off a number of these genes which protect a normal cell. And by switching those genes off, it actually becomes uh, mutational and therefore it creates the sort of environment that cancer likes to grow in and force the, the sort of growth of that, that cell. And so, so what you're saying <clears throat> is that in order to be a nasty cancer, it's a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy. If it turns off a lot of these genes that normally keep right. cells in check, yeah. it makes itself able to gain lots of other properties of a cancer but at the same time the downside is that it's more vulnerable. That's right exactly that so for us at Mission what we do is we study the DNA repair processes and within the DNA repair processes a normal cell has about five or six of those and a cancer cell will try and switch some of those off because it wants to actually increase its mutational rate and DNA repair protects the DNA so when it does this it it then actually creates that sort of environment Isn't that roughly how current therapies against cancer work? They're exploiting the fact that cancer cells are actually quite weak and that they're very easy to damage. And so when we give these drugs or radiotherapies and things, you're actually making more damage to the DNA, which in turn makes the cell fall apart. Yeah, that's correct. But the big problem with that is it also damages the DNA of a normal cell. And that's where you get the, the, the problems. And that's why a lot of patients, you know, suffer from the sort of chemotherapies that are given. What we're now trying to do is is actually use that Achilles heel, understand it a bit more, and actually tailor the treatment to that cancer cell and rather than the normal cells and therefore protect the normal cells but kill that cancer cell. You're going in and finding which of these systems have been disconnected in the cancer so that you can hit the one that it is the thread it's dangling by genetically. But isn't by definition cancer a sort of mixed population? If we go and look at a cancer we'll see because of all these mutations and genetic changes we're going to see lots of cells that are screwed up in lots of different ways. So is there just one Achilles heel? What we're finding I think is that there's a a number of cancers that there's a very early switch do get heterogeneity in cancers and and different types of genetics that are evolved from that but there'll be a very early switch and we're starting to see that for example the DNA repair processes are one of those early switches that change the environment and therefore all the tumour cells that then evolve from that tend to have that same genetic background. Oh, I see. So they're still inheriting that nonetheless. So they're still inheriting it. And, and so if you go in on that, that is the one thing that, that is consistent yeah. and constant yeah. throughout yeah. all of the tumours. Yeah, exactly. What do you do then? Do you go and say, well, let's have a sample of someone's tumour and let's unpick it genetically and see what these areas are that it's deactivated or what it's still using so you know how to go in? Yes, exactly. So the way that we will be evolving this is is by creating this sort of genetic test to go with the, the therapy so that you can actually then diagnose or take a, a biopsy or, uh, as Ian was saying, some sort of biomarker even from the, the blood 
get to understand what that tumour type is, and then because we actually know that it might have this genetic defect, actually tailor the treatment to that, that cancer. And that's really the personalised healthcare that we're looking for now within the sort of cancer field. Well, let's look at how you do that then. So you look at a tumour, you find what its genetic mechanisms are, and you say, right, we're going to target this particular mechanism. How do you then go about that, making a treatment for a person? Because we know that, what we can do is we can actually take that right back to the fundamentals, almost back to the Petri dish within the lab. So we then can actually start to look at, okay, this is what's actually been switched off. We can then look to see what's actually remaining within that cancer cell and then look for the drugs that switch those mechanisms that are remaining within the cancer cell. Ah, but do those drugs exist? Are there chemicals already that that you could put your cancer in a dish and ask, I want to turn off that particular gene and there's a drug that'll do that, is there? We're actually starting to see within the clinical trials a number of those drugs which are actually personalised and actually targeting certain tumours and and different tumours in a non-cytotoxic way. In other words, not killing other cells in the body. So this should be very, very discreet. It should just go for the tumour because because your other cells in the body have all their other systems intact. Even if you disable temporarily with your drug one of them, the other five strands are going to keep it together. Exactly that. Where are you in terms of the progression towards a market with this? Are you at a clinical trial stage yet? We are. Previously, we created a number of products which are now in clinical trial. Admission, we're still quite early. We're still in the preclinical, what they call the preclinical, the sort of testing phase. Uh, You know, we're probably about four or five years away from clinic in terms of being able to try these products out. And what sorts of diseases are you going for? Well, there are a number of diseases, but we now know that uh, diseases such as what's known as BRCA, BRCA, uh, of which there was a a high-profile case of Angelina Jolie recently, those diseases really are genetic diseases. And if you can get the right treatments for those types of diseases, you can actually kill, selectively kill the cells. She underwent a double mastectomy, didn't she, as a, a preventative measure. She didn't have breast cancer, but she does have that gene, which we know is linked strongly to premature development of breast cancer at a very young age. Are you saying that had she pursued your approach, given the option, of course, I mean, it wasn't a choice at that time, but she would potentially have the option not to have a mastectomy, but could have what you're offering instead. That's correct, Chris. So where we would like to get to is to have the sort of toolkit of drugs where we can actually offer these patients an alternative to surgery. And I think that will come. I think it's just a matter of time because um, once we actually design the right drugs, we can use them then in those sorts of settings and that will give the alternative and therefore they'll hopefully be able to just live off rather than have the the surgery, the, the drug. Does she have to wait, in Angelina Jolie's case, until she gets breast cancer and then has your treatment or could it be used preventatively in, in anticipation of getting the disease? For us, we would like to get to the point where it's used as preventative in, in a sort of prophylactic setting where you can actually treat these patients prior to them getting any symptoms and what it'll do is it'll just kill any cancer cells that actually come through at an early stage and it might be that you need to do this sort of 20s or 30s when possibility of those sorts of tumours starting to grow. So it'd be a preventative measure. Neil Martin from Mission Therapeutics. Thanks very much. Now, recently, a young British boy called Asher King made headlines when his parents took him to Prague to receive treatment for a brain tumour using a technique called proton beam therapy. 
This is available at only a small number of sites around the world because it's so specialist. It involves accelerating particles to very high energies and then firing them through the skin and into a tumour. Calculations are done first to work out exactly how much energy to give the particles so that when they penetrate the body, they come to a standstill, slap-bang in the middle of the tumour, where they then release the energy and destroy the surrounding cancer cells. It also means that they do minimal damage to the surrounding healthy tissue. But these machines are very large and very specialised, which is why so few of them exist. Instead, Rutherford Appleton laboratory researcher Kerry Brenner is developing ways to generate these same particle beams using powerful lasers, which would enable the devices to become much more compact and widely available. Hannah Critchlow went to meet her. There are two regions that plasma physicists um, such as myself are looking at related to cancer. So one of them is using the laser to drive a pulse of x-rays that could be used for imaging. So they could, the imaging could be used to detect where those cancer cells are or the tumour is beneath the skin. And secondly, that intense beam of laser light is actually so intense that it drives a microparticle accelerator, pushing forward a whole beam of particles at very, very high energies. And there's a form of radiotherapy called hadron therapy, using very energetic particles, bombarding them through the skin. And as they crash through all the skin cells, where they're slowed down to absolutely zero, that's where they deposit loads of damaging energy. Now, that sounds a bit scary, but if we manage to tailor those particle beams that they deposit all the damaging energy within the centre of that tumour, killing the cancer cells, but they don't deposit harmful energy to the surrounding healthy tissues. So it seems like the dream cancer treatment, really. Kerry has brought me down to a laser demo. So it's basically a small-scale version that could be used as future technology to zap away cancerous tissue. That laser's being focused down and the light intensity is so intense that it's heating the air into a plasma. Now, the plasma is very, very hot. This could be up to a million degrees Celsius. Heating air very, very quickly gives off a sound wave. So just as when lightning crashes down, we hear a thunderclap. We're hearing a miniature thunderclap right in front of us now where the plasma is being heated by the laser. Now, that laser plasma is the same process that we need to drive beams of particles for our hadron therapy. Once you've generated this very fast particles beam and it's zapping through my skin tissue, how do you inform it that it's got to stop? at a particular distance to just discharge the energy there and just target the cancerous tissue. So that's where there's an overlap in uh, radiobiology and physics. So as a physicist, I can understand, I can run simulations and codes and equations that will tell me that a particle with this starting energy will pass through this distance and then be stopped. The radiobiologists then come along and say, well, actually, you're not just bombarding through random material. The particles are travelling through cells and organic tissues. There are other things that you have to think about in your modelling of where that particle goes. But rightly said, that that's an extremely important part of this technology is correct modelling of how those particles travel through the body and where they deposit that energy in that dose. Because if we get that wrong, that's where the technology really fails. So that's crucial. And at the moment, how sensitive and selective is this technology? So if I had some cancerous tissue, 
how many cells would it wipe out that would be cancerous and how many neighbouring cells that might be healthy would it also wipe out? The distance between the skin outside and the the tumour that's with a certain depth beneath the skin, there'll be a slight fraction of that proton or iron beam particle dose delivered to the healthy tissue, but a very slight fraction. Actually, 80 or 90% of the energy is deposited within the tumour cells. And how does this technique at the moment compare to existing cancer treatment? This, again, is an area of big debate amongst radiobiologists and clinicians and doctors and medical people. Particle beam therapy is actually ideally suited to dealing with tumours that are in very difficult-to-reach areas, so if they're embedded within organs, or perhaps they're on the the edge of the eye, for example, or on on the edge of the spinal cord or brain. Clinicians have also advised us that proton beam therapy is very good for for children with cancers because if they're treated with proton beams, the the chances of having what we call secondary tumours later in life from their treatment is low when you use proton beams, but if you use x-ray beams to treat cancers in young children there's a chance that they develop secondary tumors from that very treatment that saved them in early childhood so this technique has been successfully used in humans to try and zap away their cancers yes and in fact there are about 50 centers across the world and one in the uk that treats cancers of the eye but traditional systems that accelerate particles um, are large and costly and they don't sit well within a hospital environment Um, i'd like to see these machines in every hospital around the world Um, but in order to do that we need to make the technology smaller and better suited to a clinical or hospital environment and the laser plasma accelerators that I'm working on are better suited to that than traditional conventional accelerator machines. So I'm, I'm predicting this to be, I'd say, a roughly 15 to 20 year plan. And that's because we're still trying to figure out the physics of how to generate these beams repetitively and with the control you would need to use it in a clinical environment. All these stages take time and a bit of patience, but I uh, hope to get to see it within my career. Kerry Brenner from the Rutherford Appleton Laboratory in Oxfordshire. She was speaking with Hannah Critchlow. This is The Naked Scientist. I'm Chris Smith. Also here is Ginny Smith. Now, over time, more and more people are undergoing treatments for cancer and many are now being cured, largely thanks to the kinds of breakthroughs we've been hearing about. But how does a diagnosis affect a person's mental state? And are we paying enough attention to the problem? Emma Cahill is a Cambridge neuroscientist. Emma, is mental health issues, are they a serious problem for cancer survivors? Well, it seems that they're going to be more of an issue in the future because, as we heard earlier, more people are surviving from cancers. In the past, until the late 1990s, a chronic illness wasn't even one of the criteria that they included to diagnose people with uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, which originally was called shell shock and it was typically associated with war veterans. But research groups that look into cancer, like Macmillan Support, in 2013 found that Of the 500,000 people living with cancer in the UK today, about 248,000 will develop mental health issues. So these include depression and anxiety, but also post-traumatic stress disorder. That's a huge number. And is Mm. is this the same kind of post-traumatic stress disorder that you see in war veterans and that kind of thing? Or is it a, a distinct disease? Well, that's hard to know because there's been a lot less research done on PTSD and cancer. But what we know is when it's being diagnosed, the same criteria are used. So in the first instance, they look that the symptoms are actually persisting for more than a month 
since the traumatic event occurred. And the symptoms they look at are a heightened sense of anxiety, and this can lead to poor concentration, trouble sleeping. And importantly, with post-traumatic stress disorder, something that's different from depression, is that they'll also have flashbacks or um, intrusive memories that are associated with the traumatic event. And particular memories that are emotionally intrusive and they cause a state of anxiety in the everyday life. So that could come from a traumatic event such as war, but also from the, the pain associated with cancer treatments and one thing we can see across different types of cancers is that a common feature that leads to post-traumatic stress disorder in a certain percentage of patients is the duration of treatment. So the longer treatment has gone on for, the more likely they are to develop post-traumatic stress disorder. So are there certain types of cancer that are more likely to give you post-traumatic stress disorder than other types? That's not known at the moment. So people are looking into this um, most of the time by focusing on a specific cancer. And in certain cases, it's been suggested that childhood cancers might be more prone to post-traumatic stress disorder. But that's also because the survivors obviously are younger, so they're surviving for longer. So you've got these confounding issues. Um, but as I said, one common feature is the, dur the duration of treatment seems to be key. Now, you actually work on post-traumatic stress disorder itself and looking at treatments. Is there anything we can do to help people who are suffering with mental health problems after surviving cancer? Definitely. Well, the first thing that is positive about being aware of PTSD in the context of cancer is that it's going to provide more research avenues. So people will be looking at this with a more open view. At the moment, treatments include behavioural therapy, so meeting with therapists. And what they regularly try to do is to make people remember or relive their traumatic experience in a safe context and to lose the sort of emotional potency that they associate with it. And that's also something we look at in the lab as basic fundamental neuroscientists. We look at how fear memories can be reactivated and then we try and find what brain chemicals are involved in that and see can we block them with specific drugs to try and neutralise the emotional part of the memory. We don't want to ultimately wipe these memories but just tampen them down so they don't have this um, emotional component. I imagine that's probably the last thing a cancer survivor wants to do is relive those memories. Mm. Why is that important if you are going to dampen down the emotions? Well, it's important because we've known for a number of years that memories, once acquired by the brain, are not just resistant and stored away like files in a, in a filing cabinet. Once a memory is recalled, it's actually opened up again and what we call destabilised. So in this state, it can integrate new information and be updated. So by retrieving your fearful memory, you destabilise it. And in that instance, if you have interfering therapies, be they behavioural therapies or drugs, one of the ultimate goals for a lot of research right now is blocking the persistence of those damaging or fearful memories. So you'll retrieve them, they become destabilised, and at that point you use a therapy which will prevent them from persisting. And quickly, you mentioned a drug that might be useful for this. How long is it going to be before we have one that we can actually use to help people? At the moment, there's no real drugs that can target the, the memory sides of PTSD. Most people are treated with antidepressants or anxiolytic drugs, so anti-anxiety drugs. But research is really striving on to try and find particularly balance of the chemicals involved in the stress system, such as adrenaline, which not only has acts on the, the body, but acts in the brain, has noradrenaline. So there's a lot of focus on blocking 
the receptors for noradrenaline in the brain and trying to understand how that might be able to be a future treatment. Lots of promising ideas then. Thank you. That was Dr Emma Cahill from Cambridge University. And thank you also to our other guests this week, Neil Martin and Jade Lauren Cawthray. Thank you, Ginny. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and also with Ginny Smith. And finally this week, Sarah Shoston has been stroking her beard and pondering our question of the week. Hi, I'm Mark from Guelph, Ontario, Canada. I've been taking part in a fundraiser for cancer research called Movember. Men raise money by growing a moustache, beard or any combination of facial hair over the course of the month of November, hence the M in Movember. My question is, I've grown a beard and moustache many times. However, this year it's growing white. My head hair is not going white, nor is it in any way speckled with grey. So why is my facial hair now growing white and only on the chin? I don't want people to think I'm dyeing my goatee white. Thank you for the great show. To get to the root of the issue, I spoke with dermatologist Jane Sterling from Cambridge to find out how hair gets its colour in the first place. The colour that comes into any hair comes right from the root, and there are some cells there. Those are the tiny little bits of the body that actually make the hair, and they inject into the hair some hair colour, the pigment called melanin. So that might be a lot in black hair, a bit less in brown hair, or very much less in blonde hair. And red hair has a slightly different type of melanin. So when we lose our hair colour, what's happening to the cells in the root of the hair is that they start to produce less and less of the pigment until eventually they don't produce any at all. Now, we often see grey hair speckled in among darker strands, but is it possible for people to go grey in a distinct patch of hair while the rest keeps its youthful shade? That sounds like a condition called vitiligo, in which the immune system, for some reason, attacks a small area of skin, and that makes both the skin and the hair growing within it go very pale compared to the rest of the skin. You can see it on the body, in the scalp or in the beard area and obviously a hairy area you'll notice the hair going white more than the skin. Vitiligo isn't dangerous and affects about one in a hundred people. But remember a lack of melanin means less protection against UV rays so make sure to put sunscreen on the white skin when you shave to avoid any nasty burns. Next week we'll be diving into this question Hello Naked Scientists, we are Joanne and David from Dublin and Ireland and we wanted to know what would happen if a scuba diver was swallowed by a toothed whale. Would he be able to escape back up the esophagus or would he be crushed by the muscles? Could the whale regurgitate the diver breakup? Would he be dissolved by the whale's digestive enzymes and if so, how long would it take to corrode the wetsuit? Thanks very much for answering our question. If you think you can help us figure out whether a whale can swallow a diver and he can survive, you can email chris at thenakedscientists.com, find us on Facebook, tweet at Naked Scientists, or join in the debate on the forum at thenakedscientists.com slash forum. That's it for this week. Thank you very much to Hannah Critchlow for production. Join us next week when we'll be looking at the subject that everyone's talking about, Ebola. We'll be looking at the science behind this terrible disease and we'll also be stepping back to examine the wider implications of the epidemic going forward. My name's Chris Smith. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University. It's supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and the STFC. And thank you very much for listening. Goodbye.